It is so great to see you here tonight. I want to thank you for coming out. Um, hopefully you um, have your notes. We're continuing from last week. If you uh, need any notes, I, I do have one more packet that we can get to you if you're missing them there. So, But uh, hopefully you have those. Uh, if you're joining us online, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We're so glad that you're here and we're going to continue on uh, in our uh, study tonight. And so we've been in the second section of our introduction, uh, looking at the signs of the times. And so we looked last week just very quickly and generally over the general uh, signs. We talked about wars in nature. Uh, we talked about people and how people have changed over time. And we talked about the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, I gave you a few things of resources for you to, to look at there and stuff like that. And so we're going to look at five specific signs of the times. Hopefully, I'm planning on getting through three of them tonight, and next week we'll finish up with the last two. I hope that these are interesting. I think that they really are. It's amazing where we are in, in the scheme of things and really how things are really aligning with what God said they would and how they would. It's really uh, amazing to me as we go through this, and I'm sure this first one will definitely be uh, amazing to you. I want you to see, I want you to see as we look at uh, the first sign here, the accuracy of God in predicting the future. You know, we've looked back many times at the birth of Jesus and looked back and saw all the prophecies of the birth of Jesus and how accurate that was. But when we come to even the events in our day that are happening, how actually clear the scriptures are that these things would take place. And what we are seeing now are falling into that category. But like I did last week, I want to start uh, this week the same way real quick. I want to give you an opportunity. Maybe this week you were looking at things or saw some things or um, whatever about what we talked about last week, the general signs that we looked at. Are there any questions, anything that come up? Maybe you left, talked about something. Uh, do you have any questions on any of that? Yes, sir. Okay. Let me see here, the very beginning of uh, the scriptures there in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Okay. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need uh, to have anything written to you. That sentence right there, what, who is that writing to? Is that writing to believers or to non-believers? That's, that's writing to believers. Because we as believers should not be taken unaware that the return of the Lord is going to come. That's what he's saying. So when, he, when he's writing this to the believers there, he's saying, listen, I really don't have to write this, but I'm going to write it anyways. You should already know this, but I want to confirm in you what you should already know. And that's what he's referring to there. So does that help? Awesome. Great question. Anything else? Anything else? Good. All right, well, let's jump into these specific signs. Uh, I've listed five specific signs that I think um, are relevant for us. Like I said last week, in, in Dr. David Jeremiah's book um, on signs, he has, uh, his book has 31 specific 
prophetic signs that are happening in our world uh, right now through time that uh, he goes into a lot greater depth. Good stuff. If you want to study that, look at that. That's good. But we're going to look at five. I've taken these headings primarily out of uh, Pastor Jimmy Evans' book, Tipping Point, um, but of course cross-referenced them and worked on them, and, and uh, I believe that they apply greatly to uh, us today. So number one, the first uh, specific sign is Israel. So that should be the very first blank on page number five for you there, uh, Israel. And as I've said all the way through this, now again, we're taking a premillennial view of end times. We looked at what all millennialism taught. We looked at what postmillennialism taught in a very broad, general way uh, there. So we got just the gist. Uh, if you want to know more, you've got to delve into those a, a lot more there. But I'm, I'm giving you from a premillennial view. And as I said, in the premillennial view, Israel and the church are separate. Uh, in the all-millennial and post-millennial, uh, the church becomes spiritual Israel. But in pre-millennial, the, God has a distinct plan for Israel and a distinct plan for the church. And we're going to see this kind of play out uh, as we look at this. So Israel is the key. And I believe this, uh, when we look at prophecy, Israel is the key. This is so important for us, church. We need, we need to understand this. Because what happens in our Western culture and when things get bad for us here in the U.S., that doesn't mean Jesus is coming. But what happens in the Middle East, what happens with Israel, what's going on with Israel over there, well, those are the things we look at and we kind of go, hmm, that, that means something. That's something uh, of importance uh, to us. And God's timetable is based upon Israel, not based upon uh, us. And, and I know, you know, we as Western Americans, we want it to be about us, <laughs> but, but it's not. I'm sorry. I wish it was. But uh, as a matter of fact, prophetically speaking, there's nothing that specifically tells us that America is actually a part of end times. Now, that's just because America is not in the name. And I believe that's because America is a melting pot of, of nations all over the world. Our, you know, we're here because everybody came over from other areas. We're a melting pot of all of that, unless you are a Native American uh, there. But even at that, you came from, from somewhere. All right. So, anyways... Israel's the key to end-time prophecy. And as I said, God has a distinct timeline. We looked at that in Daniel's 70 weeks. That was Israel's timeline. We see that Israel still has another seven years to go in the timeline that was given, that what we are living in right now is known as the church age. It's a parenthetical time that wasn't given to Daniel. Daniel didn't know about it. Um, there it was, it was God's plan that when the, when the Jews uh, rejected their Messiah, that God brought the church around. Jesus created the church church and now we're in the church age there and the last seven years will be the tribulation period that is given so Israel is the key but what is so interesting about Israel as you know I'm sure you know there was a time when Israel wasn't a nation they weren't they didn't exist uh, they had been uh, overrun many times in the Old Testament we see where Israel sinned and God allowed them to be taken into captivity and then eventually they, they came back and and rebuilt and all that kind of stuff. Well, the Bible gives us two specific times that the Bible prophesied that Israel would be reborn. So number one there, I don't know if you have a blank there or not, the rebirth of Israel. Is that, you have a blank there for number one? That's the rebirth of Israel. Quite honestly, the regathering of Israel is probably the most important sign for end times prophecy there is. 
Uh, this one had to happen. This one had to take place in order for there to be uh, end times. And so God promised the children of Israel that even though they'll be exiled because of their sin, God would bring them back to their land. He would do it twice, and the scriptures tell us specifically that. Isaiah prophesies this in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 10 uh, through 12. You have those scriptures right there on page 5 for you. He says, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant uh, that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath. Okay, so from all over the world. Okay, uh, from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal from the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So Israel has been sent out into uh, the world. They've been taken by captivity there because of their sin, and God is going to bring them back. And what Isaiah is prophesying here and talking about is the first return of Israel. And actually, we just got done studying it. We find it all happening in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the return of, the, of Israel back to uh, their homeland. Nehemiah uh, uh, talks to King Artaxerxes and says, is, is weeping over the, the uh, dismantling of uh, Israel there. He wants to go rebuild it, go rebuild the wall and stuff like that. We know that in 586 B.C. that Nehemiah went to go rebuild the wall. Israel returned back to the land, and in, by 516 B.C., uh, 70 years there, it took for them to build up the city again completely. Now, remember, it only took 52 days to build the wall, right? They repaired the wall in 52 days. That was a miracle. But it took another 69-plus years to rebuild the city. A few extra things to do there. And then the temple was rebuilt in 516 B.C., and Jerusalem was rebuilt, and they were back in their land. Unfortunately, after that, Israel was conquered again. And Israelites, the Jews, were scattered all over the world. Um, then in 1948, and this is what is so amazing, in 1948, on one day, the exact day is May 14th, 1948, Israel became recognized as a country again. This act proved once again the accuracy and literalness of prophecy in Scripture. For Isaiah prophesied, now this is the second time he prophesies, uh, the first one was in Isaiah 11, this is now Isaiah 66. And Isaiah asked this question, it's amazing. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? That's, you know how long ago that was before 1948, right? Shall a nation be brought forth in a moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her child. Dr. David Jeremiah, uh, in his book I, I recommended to you, recounts this moment in history. He does a great job. I wanted to read it. May 14th, 1948 was a pivotal day in human history. On that afternoon, a car-carrying Jewish leader, David Ben-Goron, rushed down Rothschild Boulevard in Tel Aviv and stopped at Tel Aviv Art Museum. Four o'clock was only minutes away. And inside, Jewish leaders and press representatives from all over the world were assembled in an auditorium awaiting his arrival. Ben-Gurion bounded up the steps precisely at 4 o'clock local time. He stepped to the podium. 
called the meeting to order and read these historical words. This right of the Jewish people to be masters of their own fate, like all other nations in their own sovereign state, on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Ezra's Israel to be known as the state of Israel. Since 516 B.C., since after that, there all the way through until uh, 1948, Israel did not have a country. Now here's what's amazing. 6,000 miles away, President Truman at the time, which is amazing if you study history. Um, I didn't put this in here, and I can't remember who was president right before Truman, but they got sick, and Truman was the vice president. He got put in. If he wasn't put in, then the U.S. wouldn't have backed Israel uh, based upon the political teachings that were there. It's really, really interesting. And, and it didn't happen by chance, by the way, just, just so you're aware. Right? You know, God, God orchestrated this. Okay. You're all with me on that, right? This isn't a coincidence. Okay, good. All right. 6,000 miles away, President Truman sat at the Oval Office reading a statement. He signed his approval and noted the time at 6.10 p.m. One minute later, the White House press secretary read the release to the world. The United States had officially recognized the birth of the modern nation of Israel. So not only did, was Israel proclaiming this, and that would have been one thing, but if the rest of the world wouldn't have come around or a superpower come around to Israel at that time to back them, then they wouldn't have gone anywhere. But because the U.S. backed Israel at that point, it was solidified because America has been a, a great world power and stood beside Israel, and Israel became a nation in one day. Now, I figured this out for you because I can do simple math. Until 1948, those who taught this prophecy had no idea how this was going to happen. A story is told, uh, how many of you have heard of the preacher John Hagee? You heard of him? Okay. His dad was a real prophecy buff back in the 1910s, 1920s. And he used to come to this passage of scripture and, and it's recorded that he had no idea how this was going to happen, if this was ever going to, uh, to happen or what, you know, God had to do something miraculous, but he had no idea. Well, of course, in our day and age, we know that God has done this, that the Israel is now back, uh, the Jews have control. Uh, Jews from all over the world have been coming back to Jerusalem for many, many years uh, there. And all of this was prophesied, listen, 700, Isaiah prophesied this 740 years before the birth of Christ. Now let's add 1948 to that just roughly. Isaiah prophesied that this would happen 2,685 years, very roughly, 2,685 years before it happened. What a great guess he had. Right? Right? Just, I believe. No, we have a great God, don't we? Who is in control of all things. So since this day, 1948, children of Israel have been coming back to their country from all over the world. So we have the rebirth of Israel twice that God prophesied would happen, and it has. And it's come to fruition. Now Israel is there. But not only that, Number two is Jerusalem, her capital. Even though Israel was reborn, number two is Jerusalem, her capital. Make sure you got that, I'm sorry. Uh, even though Israel was born in 1948, the capital of Jerusalem was still divided. 
Um, Israel did not have complete control of her capital. As a matter of fact, Gentiles did. Now, I'm using the word Gentiles here as the Bible uses the word Gentiles. Gentiles is anyone that's not a Jew. So you only have two groups according to the Bible. You have Jew and you have Gentile. The Gentiles were in control of the capital city. Um, at least partial control. Then on June 10th, 1967, after the Arab-Israeli Six-Day War, the Jews regained control of the capital, and, has, and the capital has remained in their hands since then. So not only has Israel come back in its own nation, but Jerusalem as her capital uh, has been her capital. And Luke talks about this. Actually, Luke recording Jesus says these words. Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people." They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now what, what, what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is referencing the annihilation of Israel and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. That's what he's talking about. Everybody's going to come around. Rome's going to come around. They're going to come and destroy the city in 70 A.D. Since 70 A.D. until 1967, the Gentiles, non-Jews, have held the capital of Jerusalem. But yet in 1967, we witnessed the fulfillment of this prophecy. The, the, the end of the Gentiles are fulfilled there and Jerusalem is in the hands of the Jews. As a matter of fact, to even bring that even more so and to bring some more backing to that, uh, on December 6, 2017, President Trump moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem to solidify the fact that Jerusalem uh, is Israel's capital there. So uh, we, we even, so 1967, we had them take it over. We have now America backing them up on that. And to this day, that hasn't changed uh, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel and is held by the Jews. So we have Israel coming back now. We have Jerusalem, the capital city, coming back. And there's still one event that's going to be future for us, but is already taking place, and that is number three, the rebuilding of the temple. So we look at Jerusalem, we see that the Muslims hold the Dome of the Rock uh, there. Uh, they believe this was the rock that um, Abraham uh, offered Isaac up as a sacrifice there. And um, it's the, wall, the Solomon's Wall is still there, the temple uh, from Herod the Great, that, the one wall, wailing wall there is still there and stuff. And trying to figure out where the temple would go and stuff. And there's been a lot of things talked about as far as they found new places on really where the foundation of the temple actually is versus this and that and whatever it's going to be. But here's the fact of the matter. In the tribulation period, one of the things that the Antichrist will do is he will rebuild the temple. The temple will be rebuilt as a sign of peace to uh, the Jews. As a matter of fact, there are many things, that are uh, many things in those areas that are happening, but there's one group called the Temple Institute. 
The Temple Institute has been for years working on recreating all of the elements that go into the temple. All of the old artifacts that were there, all the lampstands, the, the, uh, the table of bread, all of that stuff, they've been working on recreating that. And they have rebuilt everything that needs to go back into the temple. They have it all ready, and it's all ready in storage. Just waiting for the day that the temple will be rebuilt. Now, very interesting, and I actually watched something on this today. One of the things that is needed every time that the temple has been destroyed and rebuilt, this would be the third time, the, the other two times, there needs to be, as a, as a ceremony for the rebuilding of a temple, uh, a slaughtering of a red heifer and a burning of that red heifer to take the ashes of that red heifer in a sy symbolic way and in a, some way uh, to uh, be part of the ceremony to rebuild the temple. Now, this red heifer has to be completely 100% pure and uh, can't have any other type of coloring of hair or anything along those lines. It has to be 100% pure. There haven't been many of those that have been born. There's been many red heifers that have been born. Nothing to, that, to meet the qualifications there. In August uh, 28, 2018, uh, a heifer was born in Israel that met the requirements. It met the requirements for, for this. Now, whether they use it or not, I don't know and where this is at. I also got on the Temple Institute's website today, and they were showing also on there that they have two other red heifers that were born that are about 98% of the way. They still have, what they said is they still have some white hair. I hope they're not going gray. But anyways, they have some white hair, and possibly they're young enough that that hair will change and turn red. It kind of goes through you know, how our hair uh, does that. Mine lets loose before it ever changes, but anyways, we won't go there. But that's what they were saying, um, which means that, I mean, the point of it is, is that everything is in place. Everything is ready um, for them to go and rebuild. They already have, um, obviously, the architecture and all that stuff, and they're going, it's going to be rebuilt. Well, how do we know or why do we know it's going to be rebuilt? Well, because, number one, the Antichrist is going to use this for the children of Israel to be a, a, a point of peace for them in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. But in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, this is where the Antichrist will, will take up rule and reign and he'll be worshipped as the Messiah in the temple of God uh, at that time. So we know that is going to take place. So the point being here, what I want you to understand, it can't start until the Antichrist... Listen, again, the only thing that's going to happen next prophetically is the rapture of the church according to the premillennial view on what we talked about. This has to happen. The Antichrist will come on the scene and then the temple will be built. So we're not going to see the temple be rebuilt, but just know they're ready. They're, they're so ready for it. They're so ready to go that, that um, it won't take any time whatsoever that once they have their foundation and stuff to, to erect this temple, to build it to the specs that it's supposed to be with the equipment we have today um, there and with uh, what all they need to, to do this. It's going to be a great occasion for them. Um, and it's actually going to help the Antichrist, unfortunately, but we know it's coming. So again, we see a specific sign here. Je Jesus said, and God said basically in the word that, that Israel has to be regathered. Israel has to come back. Her nation has to be there. Uh, this is all based upon Israel. The capital's restored and the temple's going to be rebuilt. We see that God is putting all of this together. 
And so we are closer than ever before with Israel uh, being uh, put into this position there. So, so let me ask, do you have any questions on that? Any thoughts? Gloria. Uh, mm-hmm. Does the red heifer have to be sacrificed before a certain age? I don't know all of the requirements, but I would say yes. I would say that there would be an age limit uh, to it as well because they're wanting it to be, uh, just like the, 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 as a representative of Christ, a perfect lamb uh, there. They don't want an old, decrepit <laughs> cow, right? You understand what I'm saying? So yeah, I would say there's probably an age that needs to go uh, along with that as well. So I'm sorry I don't have all of the requirements, but there's several requirements that it has to meet. Um, and that's what they're looking for. So that's why it's a specific red heifer. It's not just any old red heifer that comes along. Because red heifers are, are you know, cows, they're red, they, you know, so they're, they're out there, you know. But this is one that is completely, perfectly red, um, absolutely meets all their requirements. And, I, yeah, I would say an age is probably part of that as well. Absolutely. Who else had a question? Roy. We are talking about a brick-and-mortar temple. That's the question. Yes, this will be a physically brick-mortar temple rebuilt exactly how it was uh, in the Old Testament. Yes. So it'll be tangible, touch, feel, go. Everything. It's not spiritual. It's, it's physical. Yes, sir. It'll be built. Is the temple going to be like what, when Jesus first started teaching? Yes. Yes, it'll be the temple. It'll look just like what he went. It would be like Herod the Great's temple. So Herod the Great, Jesus was in Herod the Great's temple at at that time. That's what it will look like. That's what it'll be rebuilt to. It'll be rebuilt to those specs. Yes, yes, sir. Absolutely. Yep. Great questions. Anyone else? All right. So the first specific sign that we're seeing already fulfilling and, and happening is Israel. Um, the next specific sign I think you will uh, agree with and will understand is truth. The next blank there is truth. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. This is really simple and, and uh, the specific point here. But how many of you would agree that in the world we live in today, tr- uh, truth is at best on life support? Right? I mean, we lived through this last year of pandemic, and we don't know who to believe, do we? We just don't. We just, I mean, you know, one, one thing is said, another thing contradicts it. Who's lying? Who's telling the truth? Um, and we see in, in our world today that there is just um, a propensity of lying. I mean, it, you know, it's just how people live their lives today, just, just lying because it benefits them. As a matter of fact, we, we have dramatically fallen away in our world, and it's been happening for years, but, but as time goes, we never have an upswing of this getting any better. We, it's always going down, right? It's a, the, the chart would just be a slope straight down on this, that we have dramatically fallen away from traditional values and biblical morals, haven't we? I mean, you know, the, the Bible is, is archaic and outdated, and we, we can't listen to that thing. That's what the world says anyways, right? And um, now, we as Bible believers shouldn't be really surprised. The Bible has uh, predicted this and said this for, forever, that, that truth is going to fall to the wayside. And, and so the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, dealing with the return 
uh, of the Lord, the, the rapture of the church, excuse me, and the, Him coming to take the church away, deals with this uh, idea of truth being uh, removed in, what, in the way that it normally has. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1-4, through 4, Paul, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul says this, Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Now remember, I told you, this is 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, Paul made the argument that Jesus was coming to rapture the church. Paul, not realizing how good of an argument he made, scared the church that they had missed the rapture. <laughs> so, word had come out that Jesus is already come and gone. You already missed it. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians and goes, no, 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 relax. You haven't missed it yet. And so let me give you some signs, some other signs here that are going to let you know that, that the end is here and the rapture is coming. So he goes on here and says, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of god proclaiming himself to be god so he says listen you need to understand that uh, there's going to be a great rebellion that takes place in the world before the rapture of the church. And you would say, well, we've had rebellion probably all of our lives, right? <laughs> right? We've seen that. But it's the idea that this is growing and growing and growing and growing and becoming more and more. So if the Lord tarries, if God tarries and decides not to come and rapture us out in our lifetime, make note that the rebellion that we're experiencing today will be that much worse then. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There's no upswing here. It's just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. And so Paul is assuring his readers that the, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet, that there's going to be this rebellion. Some translations use the term falling away. Maybe you've heard that. There's going to be a great falling uh, away. The Greek word that Paul uses here is apostasia. It is the word that we get our English word apostate from. Now an apostate is one who rejects truth. One who may know, know the truth, may, may even seem like they follow the truth at some point, but totally reject it. They just come along and say, nope, this isn't going to happen, this isn't true, it's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, they start going against what is absolutely true. They start rebelling against that. They start taking, uh, and we see this in our world all the time, the principles of the Word of God. So the Word of God calls it white, the world calls it black, right? It's just opposite all the time, just back and forth there, um, and so he says also, and this is a great place for us to recognize who he's talking about here when he's talking about the Antichrist, okay? So when he says here the man of lawlessness, he's obviously referring to a single individual. So he says there's going to be a great rebellion that takes place. This rebellion is going to happen. It's going to carry on into the tribulation period. The Antichrist is going to come on the scene, and then halfway through he's going to uh, go against um, Proclaim himself as God in the temple, as we, as we talked about. He's going to sit at this temple, which is what we just talked about being rebuilt there as well. Okay, So Paul gives us this sign all the way through, but he's saying, listen, the biggest thing that's going to happen in your lifetime before Jesus returns 
is that there's going to be this huge falling away. There's going to be, and what he's really referring to here, maybe you've heard this term, and I want to define this for you. I want to give you uh, both. Maybe you've heard the term the spirit of Antichrist. Have you, have you ever heard that term? Jesus talks about, in his ministry, a spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is having the mindset that goes against Christ in all things. It's the mindset of, basically, uh, we're going to rebel against Christ, we're going to rebel against the Word of God. We see that happening in the system of our world, we see that happening in people all the time. This rebellion that we have against the things of God in this world is the spirit of Antichrist, okay? But the lawless one the antichrist is an actual person who will be in the tribulation period we will see him when we start studying revelation he will embody this spirit all right he will embody so basically he'll embody this apostasy where he will set up and start start off going yeah well i believe in your god i believe in what you believe in and all this kind of stuff and as he keeps going he's going to go no i reject it i reject it Right? He's going to set it up as, as we're all good, we're all okay, we all believe the same. And in short matter there, he's going to turn. And eventually, by the, the uh, middle of the tribulation period, three and a half years, he will become the Messiah. And he will be the one that will be worshipped there. The biggest point is, is this. In the area of truth, we see that there will be, and there is, and is happening, a great rebellion of biblical truth and biblical morality this rebellion will become so great that what it will actually turn into is hatred okay what are we seeing happening in our world today what are we seeing happening now now we can say and because this is happening all over the globe this isn't just happening in america but our context is america it's what we see our Christian nation is no longer a Christian nation. As a matter of fact, being a Christian today puts a mark on you in our world today. Not as bad as it's going to be, but it is. I mean, I just my mind is, is blown by watching the news, um, especially not now, right now, but like when when, when um, presidents changed over and they were kind of talking about that, they started talking about these really radical groups that, that, that were out there, and all they were defining them by was people who hold religious beliefs. Just any general religious beliefs. These guys are fanatics. They're, we're radicals. We're, we're actually terrorists, they were saying. And, and it kind of died, it's kind of died down now, but listen, it's still there. It's still behind the scenes, and it's still going to build up more and more and more. Uh, we have people today in, in our world today that, you know, you can't even say the name of Jesus Christ, and they just fly off the handle. And, and, uh, and the, the teachings of uh, Christ are... Nowhere in our universities anymore. Do you realize that it was Christians that established the universities in our country? Do you realize that Princeton and Harvard were schools for preachers when they were first started? Now they are so anti-Christ, right? It's unbelievable. It's just where So truth is being twisted and it is causing those to create hatred and what he's saying here is that the spirit of Antichrist, this lack of truth, uh, will be around and be so prevalent before the actual Antichrist comes into power that we need to guard that. Which means this, church, we know we have the truth, right? We talked about this last week on Sunday. The, the, the other world uh, views 
their biggest problem they have is they have no absolute truth. They, They don't hold to anything that's true. We know what's true. The world says this isn't true, but we know it is. And this is why, church, we must stand firm. We must believe. We must live out the principles of God's Word in a world that is going to hate us because we do. All right, and it, you say, "Well, we're still in America." We're still, no, I'm telling you, <laughs> we are going to be hated as time goes on, and, and we are there. I still think we've got some ways to go as far as it getting worse, and I, I know that cheers you up, but it's it's uh, it's what it is. It's where we are on that. Any questions on truth, Kim? Will we know who the Antichrist is before the rapture? I don't believe we will. I don't believe we will. Um, as when we get into Revelation, we'll talk about the four horsemen and, and the first horse there. The Antichrist comes on the scene as a political figure somewhere in the world, but he's behind the scenes when he first begins. And then he, he uh, moves into power by the pen and stuff. I believe the rapture really is the catalyst that moves him uh, into power there. Uh, and I don't believe that we will know uh, who he is. And I'm very confident it's not President Obama or President Trump or uh, any, any of those guys. So uh, there. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm... Pretty, pretty solid on the fact it's not going to be one of the American presidents. So I'm just kind of, just so you know, okay? But uh, anyways, uh, good question. Any other questions? Gary? It's very likely that he could be alive is it very likely they could be alive? Absolutely. He ha- I mean, if the Lord's return is as imminent as I believe that it is, I believe he has to be alive. Does he know he's the Antichrist? No, I, I don't know. I, don't, I can't tell you what that's going to look like. I don't believe it's a person that is just predominantly evil growing up and they know what their role is going to be. The Bible tells us that uh, this person is going to be empowered by Satan and possibly demon-possessed, whatever, even maybe possessed by Satan himself, you know, as far as how that's going to work uh, there. Um, But at least empowered by the devil, you know, there. And uh, so I honestly, you know what? I'll be very honest with you. I don't even know that this person will know even at the beginning of the tribulation period. I think that their their intent will be good. I think that they'll, their intent will be to try to to help how they do, and then this will be the, the way that uh, Satan will use him and stuff like that. Now, with all of that said, don't walk out of here and say, Pastor Mike, no. <laughs> this is all speculation, all right? Uh, when we get there, I mean, I know I'll be right. No, when we get there, I may be completely wrong. But anyways, we will be in heaven, so we won't have to worry about it at all. Praise God, right? Okay, very good. Uh, Another question, great, great, great questions. Roy. So listen to what I'm saying. Is there any parallel to the Old Testament to what's going to happen? Uh, well, the parallels that, that, that are given are what we see in prophecy. Uh, when we looked at Isaiah there and, and those things that have happened. Um, 
Was there an event that happened in the Old Testament that would equal this? Um, obviously, there were um, overthrowing of Israel and, and, and things like that, but no, nothing that's going to be equal what the tribulation period is going to look like. With, nothing in history will, will look like what, I'm, what the tribulation will look like, no. So there's nothing to parallel uh, that with other than it's going to be bad. But the biggest key is, and the reason why there isn't anything to parallel, the biggest reason is, is because the tribulation period, the wrath of God is poured out and Satan is loosed. The events that happen, although there are physical things that happen, they're, they're drawn spiritually. They're spiritual things. That's why I, I don't hold to the fact that we're living in the tribulation now. Um, and I don't hold, to, because the things that are happening in our world right now that I'm using these signs for are man-made. Man has caused us. Man is depraved, and that's why truth is going. Jesus is just saying here, and the Bible is just saying here, that these are the signs we see that man is going to do until it gets to the tribulation period. Once the tribulation period begins, though, God's going to be the one that will be orchestrating everything. The seven seals will be opened, and the seven bowls of the wrath of God poured out, and the seven vials will be poured out, and Satan will be loosed on the earth to do what he wants to do, and God will give him that freedom to do it. And so it will be all supernaturally driven, and it will be all worse, are you ready? Worse than anything we've experienced now, all right? The tribulation period will be as close to hell without getting to hell. Seriously. It'll be hell on this earth uh, uh, until, you know, it'd be worse than that. So that's, that's where we are. But no, nothing parallels it. So great questions. Anyone else? Your questions are making me dry. Sorry. Very good. All right, I'd like to try to get through at least most of this next one uh, before our time is up. And uh, I think you'll see uh, why. And the next blank is morality. So it really parallels truth. Next thing is morality. How many of you would agree that our moral compass no longer points to true north? <laughs> Not even close. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think if we actually had a compass that would represent this, the thing would just be spinning all over the place continually, round and around. Uh, However, this is not the first time that morality has gone crazy in our world. The Lord Jesus said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. In Matthew 24, he's talking about Noah. Uh, we're going to just focus on Noah. The Bible also says as it was in the days of Lot, they're a parallel. The same conditions in Noah's day as it was in Lot's day. Lot was Sodom and Gomorrah. Noah is the flood, obviously. Um, so they just parallel with the same sins that were there. So we're just going to look at Noah. On this, And so we see here, how were the days of Noah? Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 and following says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They were the only ones on the entire planet <laughs> that followed God. At this point, I mean, think about that for a moment. You, you think sometimes being a Christian is lonely, or you're separated, or you're you're isolated. I mean, Noah. I mean, the 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 conditions were so vile, so sinful that I mean, Noah had to just be way outside of all this. But yet, we know that when Noah builds the ark, he preaches for 120 years, and the people know who he is and come and talk to him. He shares the uh, uh, that he's building this and stuff. So. You know, Noah wasn't, he was in the world, but not of the world. What a great picture for us, right? And just, just amazing. But 
He was the only one on the earth that God said was uh, living right. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so we know the story of the flood of Noah. God looked, and the wickedness of man's heart would consume them. That was all that was there. They were completely wicked. We know uh, the parallel of Lot, Sodom, and Gomorrah. We know there were sexual sins that were uh, put in there with that. That was also in Noah's day. And it was just as wicked and as vile and as perverse as it could be. And I want you to understand, this was without the internet. <laughs> right? I'm telling you. That, I mean, th- these... The imaginations of the men, as a matter of fact, the word corrupt in this verse is the Hebrew word uh, shakath, and it means to destroy, to corrupt, to decay, or to pervert morally. All of this was happening. The sin of man had become so great, so consuming, that God said the best thing to do is to wipe them out. That's it. Uh, and, and I want to stress to you, you say, well, how is that gracious? How does a gracious God do that? God was so gracious that he gave him 120 years to repent, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is, yeah, God said, I'm going to destroy them, but it took 120 years to build the ark. And Noah, building the ark, doing this thing for God, doing what God had told him. He heard the very voice of God and, and told him what God was going to do and that there's going to be rain and they're going to they're gonna die and they all are like, <laughs> making fun of him. Why are you building a boat? I mean, they didn't really know what rain was even, even then because the ground was uh, watered by the dew of, of the earth. But of course they had lakes and rivers and waters and stuff. They knew what small boats w- were even in that day. And he's building this monstrosity. Uh, here and uh, they're making fun of him Uh, but that's how wicked their heart was their heart was so wicked that they would not listen they wouldn't listen no matter what they wouldn't listen and uh, so God had no other choice in this and so God looks over Noah's day and concludes the world is evil only Noah is righteous and he's going to uh, save Noah in that day and then we see Paul writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 1 through 5 we've already looked at these verses but again you see the parallel here of what Paul is pulling out and he says understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty people will be lovers of themselves lovers of money proud arrogant abusive uh, disobedient to their parents ungrateful unholy heartless unappeasing unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. He said they, they can even look like Christians. They can even come into church and play the game for a while, but yet they deny the power, right? They deny the power, avoid these people there. Um, and we talked about what that, that meant a few weeks ago. Here's the thing. Make no mistake, you say, Pastor Mike, you're reading all of that, that's been around generations. That's, that's been around, man has been this way for, forever. Well, not to this extent, number one. And number two, yes, it's been around, but not everything listed here was a part of every generation before us. We are living in a generation today where every single one of these things are present and 
seen blatantly, wide open, nothing hidden, right? Uh, nothing uh, taken aback. We'll, we'll talk about this, but I'll use this as an illustration. We'll talk about this in a, in a moment. It used to be that if you wanted to get any type of pornography, you had to sneak out to some store, some, some place, some dark alley to, to go get it. Uh, then it came into the, our uh, gas stations in the way of magazine. Today, they're chasing you down to get it to you. I mean, that's the reality of it. You don't have to do anything, and this stuff is all over the, all over the place. We just see how this is, this is going, and we'll talk about that. So Paul gives us a list of 19 specific moral issues in this passage, and I want to divide them up into four groups and talk about them here a little bit more. Number one there on page number nine, you'll see the first thing that Paul deals with is the exaltation of self, or lifting self up, or me number one, however you want to do that, exaltation of self. He says, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and swollen with conceit. And I can tell you right now, without even trying, that some of you, maybe not all of you, have maybe one or two people that kind of fit all of those things that, that you actually know of, or acquaintance of, or seen, right? The meaning is, is that they'll be consumed with exalting themselves. They're, they're all about them. As a matter of fact, we have a word for that. And that word is called narcissism. That's what it is. Narcissism. Being exalting themselves. That's what our, our narcissism means. And there's no better place to see this. And I want to give you kind of a silly illustration. But if you're a sports person, and, and ladies, hold on. Maybe, maybe you know this, or I don't know. But... Um, when I grew up playing football, we had an important rule on the football field, and that was this. When you scored a touchdown, you handed the ball to the referee and you walked off the field. That was it. There was no end zone dance, no backflips, no parties in the end zone, any of that kind of stuff. Because, you know, one, we were young, but, but two, it was unsportsmanlike conduct when you did it, and you got a 15-yard penalty if you did. Even just giving your partner, your, your teammates, high fives in the end zone and all this kind of stuff, delaying the game, they wouldn't allow any of that. And I know even in college football, they don't allow it that much, but can you remember, it was only just about 60 years ago uh, that... Uh, running backs or receivers receive the football, get a touchdown, and what do they do? They do their black flips. They do their, I mean, the dance is now a part of uh, NFL. It drives me crazy. I hate it. But, but they've got all of this celebrating, and they're celebrating who? They're celebrating themselves. Look at how good I am. Look at the catch I made. Look at what I'm doing. And last time I checked, uh, football is a team sport, right? I'm a bitter lineman. I'm getting over it. But, you know, if I don't block, the quarterback doesn't throw the pass, the receiver doesn't score the touchdown, and I don't get to dance. <laughs> right? Right? No, that's, I, that, that illustration got a little off there. I'm sorry. It's not about dancing or celebrating or exalting yourself. You see, and we see this in, in our world today. We see this. That's a silly, silly illustration. But it makes the point, though, that... Our world is so wrapped up in, I've got to be number one no matter what. I've got to be the best no matter It's not about making myself better. It's not about improving myself. It's who can I walk over or who can I put down or who can I destroy in order that I get ahead. There's a huge difference. If you want to better yourself and you take the time and the work and, and all that stuff to better yourself, that's good. But our world isn't into that. Our world is cheat. Uh, 
any way you can, do whatever you can, put down whoever you can so that you can make it to the top of the ladder that way. We see this all over the world. We see it happening uh, everywhere. And Paul says, listen, that's going to be a sign of the times. The second thing that we see here in the area of morality, number two there, is rejection of authority. Rejection of authority. Disobedient to their parents, brutal, not loving good, and treacherous. If I wanted to find and make up an illustration, I couldn't make up a better illustration of this than what we witnessed last summer. I mean, just absolutely. I mean, our police force in all these major cities were under attack. It was, it was you know, hunt the police officers. Uh, our, our leaders want to defund the police. And, and I, I just heard today, I just heard today someone share with me, because I've not been following much news anymore. It was driving me insane. I'm trying to stay away from it. Someone told me today that there was a group of ladies that were talking in high positions in our government that are like, not only do we want to defund the police, we want to actually get rid of all police and get rid of all jails. That's what they want to do. And I'm like, what? You know, so complete total anarchy. I don't know how you, how you do that, but basically that's what, what they're saying. Um, and so we see, this, we see this happening. We see uh, crime just skyrocket, you know, uh, because, one, because uh, of pulling back our law enforcement, but the other is no one really cares. Uh, homicide is up in these major cities. I was hearing six, tenfold, uh, even more, you know, uh, just ridiculous numbers, just people dying and stuff like that, because there's no uh, respect for any type of authority. Now, listen, I'm not saying, you know, again, there are circumstances where even those that are in authority did wrong things. I recognize that, different people, but there still has to be an authority put in place and there still has to be an adherence to proper authority. And I know there's things on both sides. I don't want to get into any political debate over this. I'm just saying that in general, in general, the lack of respect for our authority is paramount and seen. As a matter of fact, one area we see it in quite often is our school systems. Uh, students uh, have no respect for their teachers uh, any longer. I mean, all you have to do is do a YouTube check and you can pull up thousands of videos of kids going nuts in classrooms and actually assaulting teachers, punching them, hitting them, throwing them, students cheering them on. Everybody's got their phone out videoing it. Why doesn't somebody step in? They want to video this thing. You know, uh, it, it's just unbelievable. As a matter of fact, Pastor Jimmy Evans in his book uh, tells this story and, and it's just so indicative of the time. One teacher I know, he said, told me a boy in his class said to him, I'm going to go home and get my gun and come back and kill you. The teacher expelled the student. At the end of the day, the teacher was walking to his car when he encountered the student's mother. Now look at this. This is crazy. All right. She said to him, well, if you wouldn't make my son mad, that he wouldn't threaten you with his gun. Not my baby. My baby wouldn't do that. We have parents coming. I, I talked to school uh, uh, teachers and, and uh, was very much in the school in North Dakota a lot and talked to principals and stuff like that. Even there, they, they, you know, it's not just big cities, guys. It's, it's happening in our small rural communities as well all the time, and it's happening. 
and uh, they're learning this behavior from their parents. The, you know, the reason why children are disobedient is because parents won't discipline the way the Bible says to discipline any longer. Um, you know, Dr. Spock has taken over what, what the Bible says. That's not pointy-ear guy. That's the psychiatrist guy. Says, don't ever spank your children and all that kind of stuff there. But even on top of that, so we, we see this cycle, and I wanted to, to be fair, I, you know, even teachers have, uh, and again, this is not all teachers, this is generally speaking, but, but they don't have that great of a track record. Uh, one of the things that's so predominant in schools that, that they're teaching our children is that the teacher's always right. The teacher knows more than the parents. Don't, don't listen to the parents. Don't, don't listen to what they're saying. You've got to do what the teacher says, especially in our high school and universities. I can't believe what's happening to students when they go to the universities any longer. Uh, they, they listen to these professors who've got all these extra letters behind their name, uh, and they come home and say, Mom and Dad, you're stupid. You know nothing. You raised me wrong, even. What you taught me when I was a child is no good. And it's happening all over the place. Rejection of authority, of parents, of, of others in authority uh, there. And then number three is the rejection of moral standards. The rejection of moral standards. He says, ungrateful, unholy, without self-control, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And again, I'm trying to keep this simple. There's so many things we could do, but uh, putting this on a general uh, level have you ever have you noticed that in this day and age that we're living in now it's very rare to get a simple thank you from someone have you ever noticed that do you ever notice that the tone of people in this world is just completely different like you know not not thank you for doing that but just basically i deserve it i you, you need to do it for me and and all of that it used to be a standard i used to get uh people asking me all the time and this was just who I was, I think it was part of my upbringing or whatever, but uh, I just, even as a teenager, I used to say, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. I just did. Now, of course, I'm, I'm morally higher than everybody else. We know that, so not even close, but uh, I'm so glad you laugh when I say stuff like that. <clears throat> but uh, I used to have people ask me, even, even in high school, are, are you part of the military? You go to the, you know, because that's, that's, they're taught to react and respond that way and and i know just yes ma'am yes sir you know uh type thing we don't see that in our society um anywhere uh any longer i mean it's still there but i'm talking about in generals right you understand what i'm saying that that the the that teaching this uh and stuff i find that it's very difficult uh, even with with my daughter to to train her time and time again to say thank you i i it's just not common in this day and age I have to remind her constantly, did you say thank you? Did you say thank you? Why? Because, well, her friends never do it. She doesn't see it whoever she's around. That, that's just not part of the culture any longer. But, of course, one of the biggest things here, obviously, in, mor in moral sense, is uh, sexual restraint uh, was also something that it was once honored and wasn't. You know, it used to be, and I, most of you folks can probably remember this, that it was actually a good thing that you went to your wedding ceremony as a virgin, right? That you consummated your marriage as a virgin. Uh, not in our culture today. You have to sleep with someone, some two, some three. You know, you have to live with them before you, you know, uh, can marry them. And, and 
That's totally, and it's, it's destroying people's lives. It's destroying sex lives. It's destroying marriages. Uh, left and right, psychologists are, are talking uh, about this. It's destroying uh, people. It's no longer the case. The story is told, and this is amazing, just to let you know how our culture is. This happened probably, I don't know, 10 10, 12 years ago, I don't know, when were boy bands famous? You know, like uh, Backstreet Boys and Sync and all that, I, 90s or whatever. Well, whoever this uh, famous boy band was, they made a commitment of chastity in the band that we would not go around and sleep with girls. We will save ourselves for marriage. That was part of what they wanted to portray as this group. And it got out into our society. It got out on the radio. It got out in social media. And these young men were destroyed by the media because they took this stance. They were ridiculed and destroyed and, and uh, disbanded as a result of this. They were mocked as if they were ridiculous and how can you, how can you do this? And, this is, and, and, and it's amazing. To live a life of purity is not the norm in our day and age any longer, is it? It's, it's separate from that. Roy. So, uh, yeah, so is, is Brigham Young underneath those standards of, of living morally? Yes, I would say that they are. They're a Mormon school. Brigham Young is a Mormon uh, school there. So, yeah, but so, so are uh, Christian universities and other private universities. Uh, you know, we had the Christian university that I, I went to uh, for my schooling had extremely strict rules on all of that. So there are areas, there are schools that, that do hold those. Now it's up to the individual students whether or not they hold those. And the schools do, if they find out that someone has what we would call sinned in this area, they would be expelled from the school and, and other things would take place, absolutely. But this is not the norm of our normal universities, of our world universities, or of our main universities. Um, uh, and it's not the, the norm of what the world says. So, so yes, there are pockets out there, but as a general norm, this is not where our society is, absolutely. So yes, Brigham Young, uh, being a Mormon school, I would say would have uh, some of those standards that they would hold to and have their students hold to. Absolutely. Yes, sir? Why do we cave so easily? Because. <laughs> because we're sinners, to be quite honest. Um, because we, uh, um, we're human um, and we value relationships with people, and we're scared of how people are going to react. Um, uh, we're, um, and then on top of that, to, to be bluntly honest, we don't take our Christianity as seriously as we should most of the time. I mean, we're okay with sliding a little bit. We're okay with, you know, backsliding a little bit. I, well, you know, my morals don't have to to stay the same is what the Bible says, and just a little bit here, and then we abuse God's grace because it's basically, well, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to do what's right. So, all, and Roy, the only, the only answer, the reason why is because of sin. That's the answer. And now we're not perfect, um, and we're never going to be perfect, and I'm not calling for, for perfectness in this, but what I'm saying is that 
um, we, we do have to draw the line. We have to set a standard, and we have to make sure the Bible is our standard uh, there and not waver. And temptation is great. The enemy is working overtime continually. I mean, all of that is, is part of that. But yet, on top of that, the other thing on top of that is that the system of this world is governed by Satan. So the world is going to go this way no matter what. We as believers know that we're to be give, governed by our absolute truth, the Word of God, and God uh, being over us. This is what we are to follow. Um, but, Roy, the reason that we don't do that the way that we're supposed to is because of sin. It really is. So, uh, yeah. So do we need to get our act together? Well, I, I believe we're continually trying, and we've got to keep going forward. We're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven. I wish we were, but on the same token, yeah, we've got to fight to get some of these things back if we can. You know, so let me speak to that. That's really good, Roy. Let me speak to that. Just because of the fact that we know the Lord is coming back and we believe his return is imminent doesn't mean we stop doing what the Bible says. It doesn't mean that we let the world go to hell in a handbasket and we don't try to stand up for what is right. It doesn't mean that we let our government do whatever it's supposed to do and run all over our religious rights and not stand up for those things. We are still to live as if we are going to live out our life and live the rest of our days knowing that Jesus is going to come back. So the fact of the matter is, is that this is not a license for us to sit back on our laurels and say, hey, let's just let it go. We know it's going to go. Let's let it go. No, God has called us to be good stewards and to be uh, doing what he has called us to do, even if the world isn't going to change. We are to continually go because what will happen is there are some within the world that will change, right? Jesus still has us here because not everyone that's to be saved is saved yet. And we don't know who they are, but we better go and we better keep living and better be doing what's right. So speaking to that, Roy, that's, that's great. That's where, what we uh, need to make sure that we are uh, doing there. So absolutely. So that's kind of where we are, where we um, have uh, backed off in that. So again, talking about... Uh, these rejection of moral standards and where the world is. This is where the world is and this is what we see. Which means in all of these areas, this is where the world is. This is not where we should be. Okay, Paul is writing this saying, this is what the world is going to look like. You as a follower of Jesus Christ, don't find yourself in this list. If you do, repent and get it right. Right? Uh, because God does offer forgiveness. God does offer uh, repentance in this. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a whole list given there of all these sins that Paul gives, and he makes this statement, and once were you this, but you've been saved out of it. What, we can all do any sin that is out there in the world, but we can find repentance. We still have salvation. We can find grace of God and forgiveness in, in all of that. Roy, you got me preaching, buddy. Way to go. Good job. Good job.
Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, um, you know, and, and that, that's true, right? Roy's talking about the fact that, um, you know, his generation, generations before where the, the ball has been fumbled. And yeah, I mean, again, we're all sinful. We all drop the ball. We, using a football metaphor again, but the next generation needs to pick it up. And the problem is, is that, you know, as time goes on, less and less of that next generation is, is picking it up. It is said, it is true. We are only one generation away from being, having no Christianity in this world you know, but praise God, uh, you know, as there's going to be a remnant for Israel, there's a remnant of those of us as believers that are holding on, and uh, we'll continue on um, uh, no matter what, so, all right, let's stop there for tonight, and we will pick up with number four uh, here in morality next week. Um, with that, though, just a couple minutes, do we have any other questions, anything else that uh, you would like to ask in what we've talked about tonight or something else? Steve. Yes, sir. If I was to do a dance in the end zone, what would I do? I would embarrass myself. That's what I would do. Very good. I would embarrass myself. <laughs> good try, though. Good try, my friend. Absolutely. That's good. Any others? That's good. I love it. I love it. Without repentance, there is no salvation for anyone. That is exactly right. That's right. That's right. Uh, Steve said, if you keep on sinning, and he's, he's right, if, if we have a lifestyle of continual sin in our life, and we're not having the conviction of the Holy Spirit drawing us to repentance, to repentance, not just, oh, I'm sorry that this happened or I got caught doing it, but, but literally drawing us to repent to God for the sin that we committed. Repentance means looking at the sin the way God does. Repentance means that I'm going to turn away from, from that sin to the best of my ability. Um, I'm going to do the best that I can not to commit that sin again. And although we may, and we, and, and we do, and God's grace is sufficient, but then we got to come back with that same mindset of the fact that I look at that sin as God looks at it. And God despises all sin. All sin is uh, wicked in his eyes. Uh, you know, we, we use the word abomination for specific sins, but the reality is all sins of abomination to God. And if we are continually living in a lifestyle of sin and not getting that right in our lives, then we need to take inventory. Because let me just tell you, right, uh, Steve, you bring up an excellent point. And even in this day and age, we need to understand this in the area of truth and delusion. There are many people that make false, um, uh, what is it? Professions, that's the word, that's a big word for me. False professions all the time. There are people that go through motions as a matter of fact, Steve, you brought this up. I'm actually going to be preaching on this Sunday, so thanks, Steve. You saw my notes earlier, whatever. But listen, and you guys will get this before everybody else, and maybe it will even sink in a little bit better Sunday. But you know what I hear all the, all the time on, on TV from TV preachers, even from good preachers, and it really bothers me, is they simply say, well, you just ask Jesus into your heart and you can be saved. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are sinners, that, that we have a rebellious heart, that sin of rebellion is inside of us, and that we must, we must come to God understanding not only that we are a sinner, but asking a holy God forgiveness of the rebellion of my heart, and that I'm going to make you Lord of my life. That's salvation. But so many people, 
So many people come to God and go, God, oh, just forgive me. And they don't know what they're saying. They're not, not recognizing. They're not explained enough to what, what it is. And, and I'm not questioning somebody's heart. And I'm not saying there has to be a, a prayer. That's between them and God. But I think so often the gospel is so watered down that if someone genuinely even wanted to be saved, I question whether or not they genuinely are because the information they get is wrong. You can't just say, Jesus, come with my heart. It's, Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I know it. Forgive me of the sin. And really, the sin is rebellion. It's really just one sin. It's rebellion. Everything else pours out of that rebellion. I want to do my own thing. And then save me. And then be Lord of my life. And, and we forget that because our life, after we're saved, we're a new creation, should, should slowly, it's not going to be overnight, should slowly, though, start looking like Jesus. We should start growing and having a desire that we never had before that God has given to us. You guys are getting me into preaching tonight. Way to go. Great questions, though. Great statements, guys. Appreciate that. Uh, you can put a preacher in the spot to teach, but you can't take the preacher out of them. So, you know, great statements, guys. This has been fun. I hope you've enjoyed this. This has been so good, and we're, we're plugging along. I promise you. I promise you, we will get to the book of Revelation. <laughs> I do promise you. So, all right, let's pray. God, you're so good to us. I thank you for these sweet folks that are here. Thank you for their heart, their love. I thank you for the things that they bring up in these questions and the things they say, Lord. And I do pray, I do pray, Lord, that we will present the true gospel message from this church. Lord, I pray if someone's here that they might even question, Lord, that they will not leave here without making that sure. That's the most important thing. Uh, and God, you're not mad at us when we question. You're not upset. You, you want us to make sure that we get it right in our heart and in our mind, and we know. And so, God, I pray that no one would ever be embarrassed to even question, uh, to make it right, Lord, is what you want. So, Father, take us this week. Help us to live for you, and we give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Spend some time together if you can.